They operate all over Britain and are the cleverest lifters in the country. Their methods are so remarkable that they're never seen stealing any goods and none of the property has ever been recovered. They're the most expert thieves in the world. The words of a top police detective. Talking about 40 elephants, a notorious and violent bunch of criminals. Who were Britain's first girl gang. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by my fellow Blue Badge guide, Laura Adams. In this episode, we're looking at women and crime. From a woman so famous for stealing that she ended up on the London stage. To an aristocrat turned highway woman and a model who shot her unfaithful lover. And three women who defied gender to find notoriety. Hear their stories in this podcast. It's the early 1600s. Little Mary Frith is forced aboard a boat bound to the Americas. Tied to a chair by her minister uncle who tries to drill a hole in her head. To release the evil spirits he believes possesses Mary. Scarred for life, she jumps ship, swims back to shore and returns to London. Where she begins her career as a pickpocket known as the notorious Mole Cutpurse. Her story began in 1589. When she was born in London's Aldersgate to a shoemaker and his wife. The chronicles recall... Both parents, having no other child living, were very tender of this daughter. The mother was affectionate to her in her infancy, careful in her youth, especially in her education, which was most strictly and diligently attended to. But Mary rebelled. She was above all breeding and instruction. She was a very tomrig and delighted only in boys' play and could not endure that sedentary life of sewing and stitching wishing her needle and thimble changed into a sword and dagger for a bout of cudgels. Mary began her career as a cut purse aged 11, hauled in front of the justices, having... Snatched a purse containing two shillings and 11 pence in cash from an unknown man at Clerkenwell. She was found not guilty. A few years later, she was accused once more. Mary Frith burgled the house of Alice Bailey by night and stole seven pounds and seven shillings, two gold half-crowns, a gold ring and two crystal stones set in silver. Yet again, not guilty. Probably because she promised in court to return part of the victim's stolen goods. But it is the celebrity steal that made Moll notorious. Robbing the coach of Sir Thomas Fairfax on Hounslow Heath. Shooting him through the arm, killing two of his horses and stealing 250 pounds. Fairfax, the commander-in-chief of the Parliamentarian forces, sent two of his officers to hunt her down. Who dragged her to Newgate Prison. But, true to form, she found a way to freedom, this time by paying a fine of £200. Branded on her hand four times for thieving and chastened by her brush with prison, Moll moved from stealing to fencing. Setting up a stolen goods shop next to the Globe Tavern in Fleet Street. 
where she became a London celebrity. Famous as one of the first female smokers in England, saying, I was taken with this vanity and its sect of puffers and high huffers. No woman before me ever smoked any, though I had a great many to follow my example. To escape the restrictions of being a woman, she started dressing as a man, explaining, I used to go in man's apparel, challenging the town fopped, but let it be known that I be not a transvestite nor a hermaphrodite. Come to my lodging and you will find a woman. She loved a publicity stunt. To win a wager from its owner, she rode the famous performing horse Morocco from Charing Cross to Shoreditch, holding up a giant banner and blasting a trumpet, boasting, I caused a riot in the streets. Fame took her to the London stage. Firstly, as a character in the show, The Mad Pranks of Mary Moll of the Bankside. Then in the play, The Roaring Girl, the story of her cross-dressing and scandalous behaviour. And with art imitating life, at the end of her performance in 1611, Moll appeared on stage in front of 2,300 playgoers at the Fortune Theatre, playing the lute while singing bawdy songs. Women were not allowed on the stage and she was hauled in front of the judges for immodest and lascivious speeches. Arrested and committed to the Bridewell prison. Moll's hard life took its toll. Suffering from what was known as dropsy, causing her to swell up. Her body yielded to the dropsy, a disease which has such strange and terrible symptoms that she thought she was possessed and that the devil had got within her doublet. Moll died aged 74. Her will declaring, I, Mary Frith of Fleet Street, being aged and sick and weak in body, but of good mind and memory and understanding, do thank my Creator for that mean estate which it hath pleased him to lend me in this world of sorrows. I do bequeath my soul unto God, believing that all my grievous sins shall be pardoned and washed away. My body I leave to a Christian burial at the church of St Bride's. She bequeathed 30 pounds to her three maids. The rest she left to a sailor uncle who she told to use the money to stay at home and drown in beer rather than at sea. In accordance with her wishes, Moll was buried in St Bride's churchyard. Interred with her buttocks upwards. That she might be as preposterous in her death as she had been all along in her infamous life. With a marble stone inscribed with an epitaph supposedly written by John Milton. Here lies, under this same marble, dust for time's last sieve to garble. Dust to perplex a Sadducee, whether it rise a he or she. Or where she'll place it, none can tell. Some middle place twixt heaven and hell. For no communion she had, not sorted with the good or bad.
dark night in 1652, a lonely supply wagon trundles out of St Albans. The driver rides through the night. Across the remote and lonely no man's land common. An open heath, notorious for footpads and highwaymen. Armed and dangerous criminals who would shoot to kill rather than leave a witness. Two men had hidden in the back of the cart. Maybe friends of the driver, maybe unwanted passengers. Out of the black night, a lone horse rider approaches and shoots the driver. One of the passengers jumps up, musket in hand, and returns fire. Mortally wounding the highwayman who rides off into the night. And keeps riding all the way to the grand house at Mark Yate, home of the Ferrers family. The next day, the highwayman was found dead in the grounds. Alongside a strange and bloodied black horse. But what made this story even stranger is that the highwayman was actually a woman. Lady Catherine Ferrers. Lady by day, outlaw by night. But why had this aristocratic young woman become a criminal? Possibly because despite her title, Lady Catherine was a loser before she entered the world. Her father died before she was born. Her mother married again, but soon died along with Catherine's grandfather. So aged six, Catherine was a rich orphan. Sent to live with her royalist stepfather's family, whose assets had been seized by the Puritan Parliament. Her callous stepdad forced 13-year-old Catherine to marry his 16-year-old nephew, Thomas. And it didn't take long for Thomas to start selling off her estates. Using her money to support the exiled king. Bored by married life and with an absent husband, she befriended neighbour Ralph Chaplin. Chaplin was a goodly farmer by day. By night, a highwayman. When he was caught committing a robbery on Finchley Common... Chaplin was executed on the spot. But whatever liaison Lady Catherine had with Chaplin, by now she too had turned to crime. At dusk, she donned her highwayman's clothes in a secret room in her house, accessed through a concealed staircase. Jumping on her black horse and riding into the night to ruthlessly rob coachmen and passengers. Yet no one, not even her servants, knew of Catherine's misdeeds. There were many local outrages. Houses were set ablaze, their occupants asleep inside. Cattle killed in the fields. A constable shot dead on his own doorstep. The reign of terror ended abruptly when Lady Catherine died. Coincidence? Nobody knows. Catherine Ferrers was buried, fittingly, at night. Not in the Ferrers family too. The shame she would have brought to the family name barred her from such a privilege. It is said that her ghost walks far and wide, riding over no man's land common. Known as the Wicked Lady. And the stolen booty that legend says is hidden around the county is remembered in this rhyme. Near the cell there is a well. Near the well there is a tree. And under the tree the treasure be. On a bloody battlefield, brave English cavalryman Mark Lee 
fights alongside his Dutch comrade. The two are compatriots, bosom buddies, their friendship sealed in the muddy misery of war against the French. Soldier Reed loves his brother-in-arms. They share a tent, eat, fight and sleep alongside each other. One day, Reed confesses his love to the Dutchman. A physical love that is returned as Mark Reed is actually Mary Reed, a woman. The two are married. Buying up their commission in the military and using wedding gifts to buy women's clothes for Mary, they opened an inn together. The story should have ended there with the couple living happily ever after as publicans. But the Dutchman fell sick and died and Mary returned to England where her story began. Mary Reed was born in 1685 in Devon. Her mother had married a sailor who disappeared at sea, the couple having a son together. Mary was illegitimate, born secretly after her mother had an affair. Mary's mother got by living on money sent by her son's grandmother. But when the boy passed away, she dressed Mary up as her dead half-brother in a scam to keep the maintenance coming. But the cash stopped when grandmother died. Now 13-year-old Mary, who continued dressing as a boy, had to find a job. Taking work as a footman for a wealthy London woman. Unhappy with this job, she escaped to sea on a man of war, then joined the British army, meeting and losing her Dutch husband. In widowhood, Mary returned to her male disguise and went back to sea as crew on a ship sailing for the West Indies. This ship was plundered by English pirates who commandeered Mary as part of their crew. And Mary started her life as a raider. Joining a pirate ship captained by Englishman John Calico Jack Rackham. Mary was a fearsome buccaneer, the first to fight off attacks on the ship. Among her crewmates was another woman in male disguise, Anne Bonney, lover of Captain Calico Jack. Pirate Anne befriended Mary. One day, Anne revealed the truth of her disguise. In response, Mary told Anne she was also a woman. Calico Jack became jealous of their friendship. Imagining they were lovers, he threatened to cut Mary's throat. To stop the jealousy, Anne told Jack that Mary was a woman, swearing him to keep this secret. Calico Jack's pirates seized ships from Jamaica and the West Indies that sailed back and forth from England. Whenever they chanced upon able bodies, they would press gang them onto the ship. One of these victims was a young man who Mary fell in love with, and the two became close companions. After catching a glimpse of her breasts, the young man's desire was piqued, and he began to ask questions. Mary explained that she was a woman in disguise. Friendship turned to romance and they became lovers. Mary's lover argued with one of the pirates who challenged him to a duel. That would have almost certainly cost him his life. So Mary started a quarrel with the pirate. And killed him with her sword and pistol. Mary and her man were married. By which time Mary was pregnant. Calico Jack's ship anchored off the coast of Jamaica. When the crew went on a drinking binge, the boat was attacked. While their crewmates were drunk in the hold, only Mary and Anne fought to defend the ship. The crew were captured and brought to trial. Where Mary told the court that she and her husband had been planning to leave piracy and to live honestly on land. Despite her proclamations, 
Mary was sentenced to hang. She pleaded her pregnant belly to try and stop the execution. Though this delayed the hanging. In 1721, Mary caught prison fever and died. In 1797, late at night, a figure snuck into the cobbled family stables in Ipswich. Stealing away with a horse. Jumping on its back, riding 70 miles to London in nine hours. An extraordinary feat for any rider. When wealthy John Cobble discovered that his horse was missing... He had handbills printed, offering a reward for the return of his... Strawberry coach gelding with a black mane and a nag tail. When the jockey tried to sell the animal to a London horse dealer... They were taken to the magistrate court. Where it was discovered that the thief was a woman, Margaret Catchpole. Margaret made a full confession. Explaining... I dressed as a young man, the better to avoid detection. She was sentenced to death for stealing. But why did Margaret take the horse? Margaret had little education, but possessed a kind heart. Employed as nurse and cook by the writer Elizabeth Cobbold, she was a much-loved servant. Who saved the lives of the children in her care three times. The family helped her to learn to read and write. But problems began when she fell in love with a smuggler called William Lord. When Margaret had news of Lord being in London, she stole the horse to try and reach him. And faced the hangman's noose. Following a powerful appeal on her behalf by the Cobbold family, the very people she had stolen from, the death sentence was commuted to seven years imprisonment. In Ipswich Jail, she was an exemplary prisoner. Until love struck again. Hoping to meet her paramour and escape with him to Holland, she scaled a 22-foot wall topped with spikes, using a gardening frame, quite a feat for a woman of only five feet tall, and disguised herself as a sailor. But she was soon discovered and once again condemned to death. This time, her sentence was commuted to transportation for life. So, in 1801, Margaret was bound for Australia, along with 95 other female convicts. Off the boat, Margaret found employment as a family cook near Sydney. Then she worked as a midwife to English settlers and kept a small farm of her own. This good behaviour led to a pardon. She could now return to England. But she chose to stay. Sending hundreds of letters home, recounting her life and experiences in Australia describing the indigenous people, the landscape, the wildlife, and giving the only surviving account of the Hawkesbury River floods. The highest that was ever known by the white men. It went over the tops of the housing, and many poor creatures crying out for mercy, crying out for boats, firing of guns in distress. It was shocking to hear. She corresponded with her former employee, Mrs. Cobbold, sending her consignments of Australian wildlife, including two caged lyrebirds which ended up in Ipswich Museum. Margaret wrote, My dear Mrs. Cobbold is very good to me. She sent me out a box of nice things, some to sell and some to wear. 
three gowns, two petticoats, three muslin handkerchiefs, a cotton shawl, 13 yards of black lace, six yards of gingham for a gown, and a great many more things too tedious to mention. By the time of her death in 1819, age 58, she'd left a unique record of Australian history. But was buried in an unmarked grave. A quarter of a century later, she emerged from obscurity into the metropolitan literary limelight. Brought to fame by another member of the Cobalt family, the Reverend Richard, son of her former employers, who published the novel The History of Margaret Catchpole. Turning Margaret into a romantic heroine, known to readers across England, the Australian colonies and the USA. On an autumn afternoon in 1915, a convoy of limousines roll up outside London's Selfridges. Out of each cab steps a bejeweled woman dressed in furs. Including a striking lady in a voluminous mink who swept into the store like a queen. The staff let the wealthy looking shoppers browse in private. Unaware that they were shoplifting thousands of pounds of gems, furs and clothing. The women were members of London's first documented all-female gang, the Forty Elephants. Named after the Elephant and Castle pub in Southwark, where they lived. And because they would waddle around like large beasts coming out of shops, laden with stolen merchandise. Secreted in crafty clothes designed with slits and pockets for large-scale theft. The striking-looking lady leader was Alice Diamond, who made her way from Selfridges with two sable coats under her dress. Diamond was dubbed by the police as the Queen of the cleverest gang of oysters in London. Forty elephants formed in the 1870s, when the women of the male-run Elephant and Castle mob broke away. A split masterminded by artist model and expert thief Mary Carr, who became queen of this new girl gang. As well as shoplifting, they made money by seducing and blackmailing influential men and conning their way into jobs as housemaids, looting the homes where they worked. They never wore the stolen goods, but used profits to purchase expensive items for themselves. They worked in small groups to avoid individual attention and distract store assistants. A favorite technique was for three girls chattering excitedly to try on multiple dresses and hats, dropping them on the floor or draping them over the counters, keeping the shop staff busy. Their queen, Alice Diamond, would stroll in, put down her coat to examine an item and then pick it up again. The coat was large. Each time Alice picked it up, she scooped up shop clothes. Sometimes Diamond would enter the shop as a decoy. So while the staff were watching her, other gang members would shoplift. Another ploy was the crush. A crowd of the girl gang would press around the counter and one would demand to be shown trinkets or makeup. Handing the goods to the woman next to her and then to the next and the next until the stolen items ended up with an accomplice at the back of the crush who would then leave the store. Another con was a gang member shopping an expensive brooch or necklace, studying it minutely and then handing it back. Working from memory, she would have a forger make a copy from paste and glass. 
A second thief would then go to the shop, ask to see the item, and switch it for the fake under the assistant's nose. The chewing gum scam involved pressing a ball of gum under the ledge of the jewellery counter, asking to see a selection of rings. An accomplice would waltz past the counter, collecting the stolen rings as she went. The gang lived the high life. After a successful day's hoisting, they would descend on a West End hotel carousing at the bar, ordering freely and flirting with the staff. But they'd be back at work the next day, 40 elephants shoplifted five days a week. Elephant Queen Alice Diamond was such a confident trickster that questioned outside a jeweller's after a theft, she managed to get rid of the evidence, slipping the stolen bracelet into a detective's pocket. Standing nearly five feet nine tall, a full fist higher than the average London man of the day, she was broad-boned and strong. During her first arrest as a teenager, it took three policemen to hold her down. Alice carried a steel blackjack and wore diamond rings for knuckle dusters. Born at Lambeth Workhouse Infirmary, she was the daughter of a violent jailbird petty thief father. Alice's first jail sentence was six weeks in Holloway Prison for stealing blouses from Gamage's department store in Holborn Circus. But Alice wanted much more than the money. She wanted film star glamour. By the age of 20, she'd learned how to put on the posh, as she called it, dressing, talking and looking like a film idol, saying, Police forces are set up by governments to stop others getting their share. There was one unbreakable rule. The 40 Elephants clan stood by their own. Outsiders were enemies. Gang girl Marie Britton fell in love with a boy who didn't come from Southwark. In 1925, Alice and the gang, armed with bottles, stones and lumps of concrete, marched to Marie's lodging, smashed their way in, and Marie at gunpoint, beating her husband senseless. Police broke up the riot and arrested the gang. Alice was jailed for 18 months. By the time she was freed, a new queen had taken over. One of her protégés, Shirley Pitts, was the acknowledged queen of the gang in the 1960s. Pitts' operation was on a smaller scale than that of her mentor. Changing fashions made it harder to stow shoplifted loot inside clothing, and stores increased security and surveillance. The 40 elephants officially disbanded upon Pitt's death in 1992. By this time, the gang were a folklore legend rather than an active threat. Yet they remain one of the most successful and long-lasting criminal organisations in English history. A route for lower-class girls to achieve independence, 40 elephants created an illegal world of fashion, money and fame. On Easter Sunday in 1955, a man walks out of the Magdala Tavern in Leafy Hampstead. An attractive woman steps out of a car and points a pistol at him. The first bullet missed. The second hit him, dropping him to the pavement. As he lay wounded, the woman stepped towards him and fired 
fired three more bullets into him at point-blank range. The killer did not try to escape. She was arrested at the scene by an off-duty policeman. Her name was Ruth Ellis and her story is a landmark in British history. Ruth was born in 1926 in North Wales. Her family moved to London for work. Age 17, she began working as a photographer's model, bringing her into contact with London's clubland. A scene that would define her destiny. Ruth became pregnant, giving birth to her illegitimate son Andy, who was cared for by her mother and sister. Through her modelling work, she met Maurice Conley, a London vice-king who owned a club in Mayfair. Conley offered her a job as a hostess. Popular and well-paid, Ruth earned enough money to pay for her family to take care of her son. One of her clients was George Ellis, an older man who Ruth married, probably for the security of herself and her son. The couple moved to Southampton where they had a daughter. Things seemed to be going well, but Ellis's drinking led to a split. And Ruth returned to London, taking her children with her. Back working in the clubs, two men now came into Ruth's life. Wealthy businessman Desmond Cusson and womanizer David Blakely. Cusson was besotted with Ruth, but she was infatuated with the extravagant racing car fanatic Blakely. Well-educated and well-off, Blakely spent a £7,000 inheritance building race cars. Weeks after meeting Ruth Ellis, the pair were sleeping together in her flat above a club in Knightsbridge. Blakely's relationship with Ruth was tempestuous, with extremes of physical passion and abuse, as plenty of witnesses would testify. Ruth suspected Blakely of having an affair with every woman he met, and with good reason. The besotted cousin, meanwhile, had taken to following Ruth and Blakely around, and sometimes took Ruth with him if she wanted to know what Blakely was up to. In February 1955, police were called to Cusson's flat, where Blakely claimed that Ruth had tried to stab him. Ruth was covered in bruises, had a black eye and was limping. Ruth became pregnant and miscarried and somewhere along the line lost her job. One evening, when Blakely failed to come home, Ruth called Cousin, who, willing as ever, took her to find him. Ruth had a blazing row with Blakely that spiralled until the police were called. Cousin took Ruth home, but Ruth wasn't finished with David Blakely. Blakely went to the Magdala Tavern to buy cigarettes and beer. Ruth tracked him down. His car was the giveaway, and she saw it outside the Magdala. And when David Blakely came out of the pub, she was waiting. She knew how many shots she'd fired because she'd kept the last one for herself, only for the gun to jam. Then, suddenly it went off, the bullet ricocheting off the pavement and struck the hand of a woman passerby. Ruth stood motionless in shock, then said, Will you call the police? She was arrested by an off-duty policeman who heard her say, I am guilty. I'm a little confused. On the 20th of June, 1955, Ruth appeared in the number one court at London's Old Bailey. Dressed in a black suit and white silk blouse. With freshly bleached and coiffured dyed blonde hair. The only question put to Ruth by the prosecutor was, When you fired the revolver at close range into the body of David Blakely, what did you intend to do? Her answer 
It's obvious when I shot him, I intended to kill him. This reply guaranteed a guilty verdict and a mandatory death sentence. The jury took 20 minutes to convict her. Ruth did not want a petition to reprieve her from this death sentence. But her relatives wrote a seven-page letter to the Home Secretary, setting out the grounds for a reprieve. The request was denied. The day before the execution, Ruth's solicitors came and visited her in jail so she could make her will. When they pressed her for the full story, Ruth divulged that Cusson had given her the gun and taught her how to use it. She also revealed that Cusson had driven her to the murder scene. In a final letter to Blakely's parents from her prison cell, Ruth wrote, I have always loved your son, and I shall die loving him. Just before 9am, on the 13th of July, the hangman Albert Pierpoint and his assistant entered her cell and took her to the execution room where she was hanged. Ruth was buried in an unmarked grave within the walls of Holloway Prison. In the early 1970s, the remains of executed women were exhumed for reburial. In Ruth's case, she was reburied at St Mary's Church in Amersham, Buckinghamshire, with a false name. Her headstone was inscribed Ruth Hornby, 1926 to 1955. Her son, Andy, destroyed the headstone shortly before he committed suicide in 1982. Ruth Ellis was the last woman to be executed in Britain. In 1965, Parliament abolished the death penalty. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written by Mark Zakian and co-hosted with Laura Adams from Women Inspire. The music was by Scott Buckley, www.scottbuckley.com.org. For more information about the series, visit www.storiesofbritain.com.